Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Ecclesiastes 3, and for context, we don't need much context because we just did chapters 1 and 2, um, but essentially came to this conclusion that trying to live life without God is like trying to catch the wind. It's vain. Um, and I think it's important, like, stuff reminded me that last time we did Ecclesiastes, every time I opened up with the last two verses of this book, we have to keep in mind as we're going through Ecclesiastes that the end of the book says, all the way in chapter 3, let us... Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. All of this earthly thinking gets us to that point, but it gets us to that point without saying God said so. It gets us to that point through a reasonable, logical process of really thinking through these sorts of things. And the life cycle then is, is what we're dealing with with the godless heart. We've already had in the first two chapters hedonism, materialism, kind of achievementism, just accomplishing things, ownership or being a boss of things, um, fame, recognition, despondency, fatalism, bitterness, and even anger, which leads to despair. And now in chapter three, we get a much more deeper look at fatalism. Like with all of this stuff, shouldn't we all just be like, well, none of it matters, who cares? So he does a real deep dive on fatalism. This was common in pagan religions of Solomon's day. Just this attitude of none of it matters, so nothing matters. Uh, it's still common if you look at kind of the Greeks, the Buddhists, like there's a lot of this fatalistic attitude that even comes from the secular crowd that we live in today. Just if none of it matters, why does any of it matter? And it's a worldview of weariness. It's kind of this, you know, I'm more mature than you because I've learned how to not care, right? And so it's this, the worldview of kind of that attitude. What's going to be will be, there's nothing you can do about it. And you should just therefore be hopeless. Um, and that that's actually maybe a, a rational step in life. Um, and don't get upset about it. So if we pres pursue entertainment, the end of it is vanity or worthlessness. If we pursue God, the end of it is some sort of redeeming worth. And there's a contrast between the two. So where do we get our life from? Which is the discussion of like, None of these pursuits that Solomon brings up are negative. He doesn't call them sin. They're just a way to live life. The problem with them isn't that they're wrong by some sort of moral standard necessarily in Ecclesiastes. The problem with them is that they are just part of the cycle. They don't have any meaning to it because it doesn't bring meaning to our life, yet we have this eternal spirit that wants some sort of meaning in our life. So remember, Solomon is testing philosophies. So chapter 3, verse 1. To everything there's a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain, a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to throw away, a time to tear a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. <laughs> so this is the old song by the birds. They literally take this word for word and turn it into a, a pop culture song. Um, what good is it all? It all and and the, the, the chorus is to everything, turn, turn, turn. You know this song, right? Or is this where I get Michael's look of Dickers trying to make a pop culture reference? Um, it's a song, go listen to it, check it out on YouTube. Uh, it's, it's a catchy song, and part of why it was successful is it manifested a worldview that was popular amongst the hippies in the 60s, right? Everything just happens, turn, 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 turn. And by quoting the Bible, like people got all excited. Well, this is, this is a believer's song. No, it's not a believer's song. It's, it's quite the opposite. of If you're going to quote something from the Bible and you don't like the Bible, this is that kind of attitude that you would quote, is that, hey, there's a time to kill. No judgment on killing in that verse, is there, right? There's a, it's just the same as healing. It doesn't make a difference what you do. So even, 
in this kind of oppression or this attitude, there's just this, the time that we live in seems to have more control than who we are. There's a time for this. And the way in which he uses a time for this, a time for that, the repetition is a poetic form of monotony, right? A time, a time, a time to where you just get sick of hearing it. In any language, uh, this gets to be an oppressive kind of thing. Everyone's under this cycle of time and you can't get away from it ever. It's a prison, a time to be born and a time to die. You're not in control of either of those. You didn't control your birth, you won't control your death. So we spend a large part of our life trying to influence when we die, like the people that want to eat healthier, or exercise more. Those aren't bad or good things. Like I'm not, I'm honey, I'm not saying it's bad to exercise. I'm saying that you can't live for that because you ultimately can't control when you die. Um, or a time to you know, do, do all of the things in this list. Note that all of these things are essentially in God's hands, not in ours from a, a, a believer's perspective. So then one attitude is to stop caring about it. I, this is essentially the problem with Calvinism if you're looking at a Christian version of this, right? If God's in control of everything and there's no outcome that you have control over, why should you care? And it just sucks that caring out of you. So there's a good thing that balances each of the bad thing he lists, but he is not casting more judgment on either. I think that's where he's doing this exercise. A time to plant and a, t a time to pluck, referencing seasonal events, a time to put the crops in the ground and to bring them out. Um, and agricultural growth historically is gaining prominence worldwide during Solomon's era. So the world is shifting from herding to this planting and harvesting kind of thing because the cultures that planted and harvested were able to feed more people and, and, and garner bigger armies. The time to kill and time to heal. The Hebrew word there for kill is not to murder, but the civic administration of, of hurting or killing things. It's the same word they used for killing animals at butchering time. So, you know, one way to read that is that it, it would be the herdsman-type lifestyle versus the agricultural lifestyle, right? Not killing other people, but there's time to kill your animals, there's time to heal them and help them grow. And it goes on and it goes on and it goes on. So... Even the depressing things, when organized appropriately, become poetic for Solomon. Even beautiful. Like there's this idea that all of life has a certain rhythm to it. And let's look at it that way instead of looking at it from a perspective of meaninglessness. Let's look at it as just something that's kind of beautiful in and of itself. If taken as biblical, think of these things that these are all things that you don't have to justify because they're just part of our life and we don't really have control over that. Anything in the moment then becomes acceptable in the moment. If you're in the moment when it's a time to do this thing, then you do this thing. So this attitude of living in the moment is, again, this is why the hippies loved this song. Well, I'm just going to do whatever's in the moment and embrace it. So there's nothing essentially meaningful, even if there's something that's an orderliness to it, even if there's a cyclical nature to it. So none of these have context. Uh, to, there's a time to throw away. What are we throwing away to? So there's a time to sow, but what are they sowing? None of these have context. None of them have a reference point. A time to kill? Well, what exactly are we killing? Right? So, none, so these are all verbs, but none of them actually have a reference point to them. A time to speak? Who are you speaking to? What are you speaking about? Right? There's, again, no reference points. No, no All the ideas and opinions are not equal, but in this kind of context or presentation, they all have some distinct benefit, even outside of reason or outside of context. They're all common behaviors, but we don't know where they're happening or how. So there, if there is a time to speak and remain silent, how many times do we mess up this situation? Another way to look at this. So we need some sort of context for every single one of these from a Christian perspective to understand when it's time to do it or when it's time not to do it. I mean, I think of evangelism, time to speak, time not to speak. How do we know that reference point if we don't know Who's telling us to speak or not speak? What makes speaking or not speaking right or wrong in different situations with different people? Like, at some level, a thinking person, this worldview that is so popularized in Ecclesiastes 3, it becomes a confounding mess of questions. Well, when do I speak? When don't I speak? If there's a time for it, how do I know that time? And it's so Solomon's driving us, I think, towards these kinds of questions as we go on with the chapter. We need a context a man has joy by the answer of his mouth, Psalm Proverbs 15, 23, and a word spoken in due season, how good it is. We know there's a right time to speak, and when we hit it, it feels great. It was the perfect thing to say in the perfect moment. 
But how many times have we missed it and we don't know that? Ver, uh, verse 8, there's a time to love, a time to hate. Do Christians hate things? Like, wait a second. Like, let's process that. When do we hate? And the answer, I think, biblically is a, a, a difficult one to swallow. There are things we're supposed to hate in the Bible. And, and so, again, without a reference point from Solomon's perspective, we don't know what that is. Biblically, Deuteronomy 16.22, we're supposed to hate idols. We're supposed to actually hate the very thing that Solomon's talking about, which is vanity. You know, we look at, uh, we're supposed to hate people who work iniquity, Psalm 5.5. It, it was okay for us to hate genocidal Nazis. Like, we're supposed to not like child molesters. Like, we're supposed to have issues with that iniquity that's in the world. The wicked and the violent, Psalm 11.5, the godly hate the wicked and the violent. We hate those behaviors that are mean and nasty. We're supposed to actually be upset with, or, or to hate evil itself, Psalm 97.10. We're supposed to hate evil itself. So when we see injustice, oppression, those kinds of things in the world that humans do to each other, that's actually supposed to bother us. But from a fatalistic perspective, why would it bother us? Why would the will to power be a problem for anybody? Because why should we care? Yet we do. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance, and the evil way, and the perverse mouth I hate. So yeah, from God there is reference points on some of these things. There's times and places where Christians say, I hate that. And I actually think this is great when you're dealing with non-believers and they're like, well, how do you deal with so much evil in the world? And you're like, you know what? I hate the evil in the world. And that's absolutely, like, we can say that with total conviction. We hate evil. We hate when the, the, the child, the sex trafficking going on. We hate that. And we're against it. We're on your side to stop that sort of thing. And you see that, that Christians take up those kinds of causes. But like our hobbies and our entertainments, we don't worship the cause. We may take it up, just like a hobby or whatever in chapters 1 and 2, but we don't necessarily worship those things. Again, a time for this, a time for that. So if we seek to overcome fatalism and try to find order and rhythm and all this sort of thing, we don't necessarily live or worship that thing. Does this make sense? But we still can see and understand that there is a time to hate. There is a time to love. What are the things we're supposed to love? And there's, that, there's too many references for us to cover that. Like the Bible is all about that too. And there are times for these things. Then you get to verse 9. What profit has the worker from that which he labors? I've seen the God-given task with which, some sons, which with the sons of men are to be occupied. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He has also put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. So Solomon's saying, like, I've seen beauty in every one of these situations. I've seen that there's a right time to speak and a right time to keep your mouth shut. I've seen that. I've seen that there's good. There's these flashes throughout life where, ooh, that was right. That was good. We took a criminal off the streets, and there's a satisfaction that. We finished that construction project, and it's beautiful, and it's, it's wonderful. And there's these moments we have as humans that are like, this is awesome. I finished that painting, and you can step back and look at it and say, that was awesome. That was, that was a, a, a fine and a good act. And I think that's beautiful. That's part of what Solomon's claiming in verse 11 is, everything's beautiful in its time, and, he's also, and he also he's put eternity in their hearts. We know it's good because something eternal in us says that was good. That was right. That was the right timing. But back to the question in, in chapter 1, verse 3. Without God, what's the use of it? Why fight it? It's just the way it is. Why should we even try? So it's like fish swimming against, against the current. We as humans know there's something right about the swimming, but we don't have context for it. We don't know when the times are or what they are. So this time the preacher answers his own question. <laughs> he has made everything beautiful, verse 11. There is something beyond humans. And he uses he here. He doesn't use, uh, we'll see he doesn't use Yahweh in this context, right? He just mentions this he. Um, what should be meaningless then becomes kind of beautiful. Why is that the case? Um, I think of food. Like, I talk about this a lot. Like food can be really mundane. Like I think of oatmeal without any flavoring. It's, it's just this mundane stuff we put as us. Or if any of you have tried dog food, like dogs eat dog food and they don't complain. It's just food. And they just, it, it, they just eat it for the sake of eating it. Why do we have spices? And why is it good 
when you hit just the right things, right? What's the Italian word? Perfecto. Perfecto, right? Why is it that when we eat something, it's why do we look at a tree and we see a beauty in the tree when it's just a tree? Why, why, do, why do sunsets blow our minds? Why do rainbows strike us as beautiful? There's something eternal in our soul that sees beauty. Why is that the case? Verse 11, he's made everything beautiful. Why do we look at the deepest seas, the outer cosmos, the, the, the microbiology that we can see beauty in every stage at every size and all of creations filled with things that we think are beautiful? That itself is also a fact you can come to, a reality you can come to without any revelation from God. You can look at your own heart and realize, I see beauty. And, and so when God says to move, and we do so, we align ourselves with something bigger than ourselves. And as believers, we see that there's something beautiful about aligning ourselves with an almighty God, a God of beauty, a God that creates it. Augustine's maxim was this, you've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find peace in you. So this, this, this conundrum that Solomon brings up, verse 11, in, his, in its time, history shows there's a pro progression. There seems to be a larger story in history and study of it does a re reveal that timing's really important to history. Everything in its time, these dates, these events. And, he, and Solomon says nobody can work it out because we're mortals, we don't live long enough. There seems to be something happening in history. There seems to be a progression. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. When Paul's writing that to Timothy, notice that he points out that Christ came in due time. There was a specific time when Christ came that was an important thing. It was an event. There seems to be a progression to history. He also actually says, appointed a preacher and an apostle. I like that he works in the word preacher there. This is our calling and role as humanity, is to be part of this larger purpose and plan. That's the Christian point of view. I'm going to bounce back and forth with chapter 3 a little bit. Life doesn't happen in our time, but in God's time. And oh, what a blessing to be part of something larger than ourselves during the time that we have on earth. In other words, Solomon's saying there's a time for this, there's a time for that, and, ev and everything seems to be beautiful. There is this abstraction that it's not about us, right? Rainbows don't care if we notice them or not, yet they are there. Rainbows are tough because like, we get the story of Noah and like, some account as to why they're there. Um, but a beautiful oak tree standing on a hill, a mountain facing against the elements, something striking about it. We assume what is normal and we lose all perspective of God's intent. When we just look at the mundaneness of life, we just go to work every day and come home, we're missing something when we do that. The fact that we live at the bottom of a deep gravity well on the surface of a gas-covered planet um, this is Douglas Adams, by the way. I'm citing Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. The fact that we live at the bottom of a deep gravity well on the surface of a gas-covered planet going around a nuclear fireball 90 million miles away and think this is normal is obviously some indication of how skewed our perspective tends to be. This is not normal. Beauty is not normal. It is the opposite of what we would expect in a cosmos that is just meaningless and pointless and does not have a maker in it. None of it's normal. Beauty is not normal. There's something true to fatalism, but there's also something deeply flawed with that worldview. A proper godly disposition is not to throw our arms up in fatalism, but to wonder how do we fit? Where do we belong? And we throw our arms up to God and not into just this indignation against God. We're bound in time. We have hearts that understand that. We know that God's acting. And then the work that God does is in due time. Solomon, the work that God does. God sets up these times for things, and we can rest in that. He claims and owns time. So when we go looking for it, that's there. Everything in due time is exactly what God meant and how he designed it. It's bigger than us. It's not about us. Actually, it's kind of beautiful. So we ask God for all these things in our time, which is kind of selfish. It's kind of vain. Praying itself seems to be kind of an act that's like that. But I want to 
unpack this just a little bit before we go to verse 11. If he's made beautiful everything beautiful in its time, then we, th- we think about how what we serve and what we do is part of how we humble ourselves to God. Let us not grow weary while doing good. Galatians 6, 9. For in due season we reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially those who are of the household of faith. In due time. Everything happens in its own time. Even our basic provision comes from God. Psalm 145, 14. The Lord upholds all who fall and raises up those who are bowed down. The eyes of all look expectantly to you and, to, and you give them their food in due season. And you open your hand and satisfy the desire of every little living thing. There's a pattern throughout the Bible that God knows everything that we want and everything that we're going to do. And yet releases things in due time. That he's in total control of the situation, yet we have total autonomy in our life. There's this balance. So when we fight against this, when we, when we bring our own will to the table, we're actually fighting against something that seems to be happening that's outside of our control. We don't control when we live. We don't control when we die. We don't control the times things are supposed to happen. So the only solution is either to be frustrated with that or to say, okay, I'm just going to do things in God's timing because that's what I have to, before me. So it keeps going in the New Testament, this perspective that God plans it all and he puts hope in us and he puts it on our hearts. Titus 1, uh, verses 1 through 3. In hope of the eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching. First Peter 5, uh, verse 6. Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon him for he cares for you. Obviously, you can see I got these from a word search of due time. Like this idea that God pulls up things in due time. That's a really interesting concept, and we humble ourselves to it. I don't think Solomon's far from that here, but he's going to not do it through God's revelation. He's going to get there another way. So verse 11, he's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. Eternity there in the Hebrew is olam. It means ever, always, perpetuity. He's put this alwaysness in our heart. And what does that mean? That we have this natural desire to know what goes on outside of ourselves. At least we could. Every world religion that exists, even the pagan ones, are explaining something that we cannot see. That's the effort of all religion is to bring meaning to something we simply lack the knowledge of understanding on our own. That's the point. And again, Solomon, I think, presents this with no judgment either way. That's just the reality of it. So God put this idea of eternity in their hearts. He's not claiming Judaism here. He's just saying that we pursue this as humanity for a reason, and it's because we're eternal beings. So we pursue these things we can't understand because maybe there's an answer out there somewhere. Everything in us, uh, this is another just great argument, I think, against atheism. Everything in us resists death. And the only reason we resist death is because we're eternal in nature. It's against our nature to die. It's a curse to die. We're not built to do it. So even the strongest, most adamant people, when it comes to the day of their death, there is this moment of panic unless they have hope in Jesus Christ. Did I make the right decisions? Am I on the right path? What's going to happen to me after I die? Those are questions that, again, our animals don't seem to have, right? They don't have this moment of catharsis. They react to physical pain, but there's no spiritual pain for them when it comes to death. So this is this task that we set out to in life, and we have to see if we can satisfy this task. It's not just empty or meaningless unless we convince ourselves that it's empty and meaningless. Okay, this is a huge philosophical shift in, in Ecclesiastes. Life is only meaningless if we convince ourselves that it is. Our natural state is to think that there's meaning. And really to say there's no meaning, you have to fight for that. This is why it's really funny to debate atheists. They can't understand that contrast. Why does it matter to you so much that I believe in life after death? Why is it important to you that I, what, what I think matters? I don't care what they think. Why do they care what I think? And I think it's because there's eternity written on their hearts. So this goes all the back, way back when we were children. I don't know if when you were kids, we used to have water that would go down the curb. 
and it was a newer development, so there'd be mud that would come down from the yards. So when you went right down by the gutters, there'd usually be like a little like dam of this perfect mud. So we'd take the mud and build bigger dams and have the water get blocked from getting to the gutter and we'd make little ponds and then splash in them and get really, we got really wet in those rainstorms. And then when the storms were over and the rain stopped, we could take all that mud and we made little cakes and lined them up on the curb. This activity would take us as children hours all afternoon. And in our head, we're thinking, this is really important work. Like as an adult, it's like, what are you doing? But as a kid, you're like, I am making mud cakes. And the mug cakes matter because as human beings, something in us thinks whatever we invest our time in has worth and value. Why? Where does that come from? I, again, you can have a cat and cats don't take on projects. Why do they take on projects? Where does that come from? What's the nature of it? Well, this is for over millions of years, this is biologically something we've attuned to to live and survive. And, and it helps us when we take on projects because we become more resilient against the elements. And really, mud cakes are helping with that? That's something that, something that evolutionary processes have brought about in the human mind is to make mud cakes and then imagine that you're selling them and even daring your friends to eat them. Like, I've watched monkeys at the zoo for a long time. They do not dare each other to eat mud cakes. And this is a reality to humanity that's something different than the rest of the world. It's an important thing. Eternity in their hearts is no small concept. Where was I? Sorry, mud cakes. Fatalism then has to be trained and not natural. So everything we read in chapter 1 and 2, that idea of letting go of this idea of meaning has to be trained. You have to harden your heart against this idea of meaning. And it's a difficult process, it's, but it, it's something that you have to unnaturally convince yourself that life doesn't mean anything. We never know what's outside of us. In the Bible, though, we have an explanation for eternity that does resonate with the heart. We know it to be true. So there's a resoundingness to it that works. How does that happen? What's re been revealed to us? Matthew 16, 16. Simon Peter answered and said, You're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. When we get the answer, when anyone on earth gets the answer that clicks and it makes sense, it makes sense. That, that confounding debate in our head can be silenced finally because we've learned something that just works. So the preacher, you could argue, steps away from under the sun for a little bit because he's going to get into this idea of rejoicing. Um, or is he getting away from under the sun? Like, has he really left it? Verse 12, I know that nothing is better for them to, than to rejoice and to do good in their lives. So I think, he again, for the godless, this is a pre prevalent view in the United States. Some people just do good and live good lives. And, there's, and, and to them... They rejoice in that. So there's a rational outcome here. It's not fatalism, but it's obliviousness. I'm going to find meaning in the little things that I do in life. It's a distraction from thought. Oblivion's a really comfortable place to live your life. Philosophically, this is sound. Let none of life matters? I don't care. My woodworking matters. And that, so I'm going to give meaning to the things that I do, and that's going to get me through life. So it says for them, <laughs> I think that's interesting, not for Solomon, this didn't work for him. Um, not everybody can take joy in, in, in vain things. There are some people that are nagged with this desire for truth and meaning. Um, but Solomon recognizes there are people that are not nagged by this desire for truth and meaning. They live their lives. They don't ask the question, what more could there be? And so Solomon admits that under the sun, there are these very happy, simple people that don't debate these things. Who are these people? Verse 13. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It's a gift from God. So from a God that loves you to enjoy the things that are beautiful is a simple blessed life. And he's, he recognizes this, but notice he's, he's doing it from the outside perspective. He's not saying I believe this or we. Um, it's from God's hands. The enjoyment of life has meaning and purpose. It's not for his own sake, but because we're loved and these are good things. So there's this idea that under the sun, there are these people that just live these simple godly lives. That's a reality and a truth too. This is a reality, by the way, that a lot of secularists today are trying to deny, right? So they write movies and, and radio shows and TV where they argue there's a thing that's called Christian, but they're all hypocrites and they're all fake, right? It's all an act. 
And so that worldview gets permeated through that culture. So, because they don't want to recognize what Solomon here, as a secular thinker, is recognizing. There actually are really simple people that eat, drink, and enjoy the fruit of their labor, and, it's, and they consider it a gift from God. It's a good thing. And, and there's no hypocrisy there. It's just simpleness. And, um, and sometimes we belittle other Christians that do just have a simple, basic faith. I knew a guy who was just like, if the Bible says it, I believe it. It's just that easy. I don't struggle with this. Right? Frankly, Steph was a lot like that when I got married. She's just like, I don't wrestle with some of these ideas. And it's a beautiful play. Boy, if you don't wrestle with it, what a freedom from confounding thought. It's great. And I like that Solomon admits that this is a good thing. Verse 13. Verse 14. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. That which has already been and what is, already, what is to be has been, already been, and God requires an account of what is past. So if, if there is a God and God does things, we know three things about this God. If there is an eternal God, A, they do forever things. Two, they complete things of which nothing can be added to it. Humans can't really add to the work of this God. And three, they secure things. Nothing can be taken from God. So we as humans can't really react. If whatever God this is, we react to this God in this kind of way. So Solomon seems to even admire this simple life. It has a resolution to it. There's a strength to it. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. And it seems to be eternal, unlike the behavior of everything else under the sun. Lots of Christians, I think, try to add something to this basic, simple life, and we call that religion or legalism. You're trying to add rules and regulations to this simple life with God. And then we, we add these layers of stuff that we don't really have to have in the first place. So Christianity is not a religion. It's a way of life. Christi Christianity is not of humans because there's nothing we can do or take away from it. And Solomon's not even writing about Christianity. He's writing about the service to this God. Whatever God does, it's forever. The core problem with pure fatalism is it doesn't re leave room for these humans that obviously exist, these very simple, basic, joyful humans. God can and he does give joy, and there are people with joy. There are people with grace. There's some people with enthusiasm. There are people that get excited, that have amazement, that have wonder. There are people that live their life, and they just have joy. These nagging people that ruin my fatalism, how do they do this? God does it that men should fear before him. These people are evidence that there's a better way to live. What an amazing thought. If you think, who are the happiest people you know? Who are the people that are the most simple, the most childlike, and they live their life just appreciating God and the people around them? I think of people with Down syndrome. And they're evidence that there's something greater than us because they have the least gifts when it comes to cognition, but they have the greatest joy of spirit. That simplicity or childlike nature is a better way to live than everything Solomon's come up with so far. Think about that. And it seems like almost every community of people has dropped one or two very simple people in their midst. As God puts that there to, re, to, to, to make us consider, why are we so confused about life? It can just be really simple. Just a thought. And again, I, the, to me, at least my interaction with people is, Atheists love to reject the idea of honestly happy people because they need to. They can't accept that there's a way of life that gives joy and peace. That's a hard thing to embrace because their worldviews won't embrace that. So Christians are simply idiots or they're dumb or they're thoughtless or there's something wrong with their intelligence level. Like clearly they need, they have this crutch they need to hang on to. They'll come up with all sorts of excuses which is an odd thing. I don't sit around in the evening and think, what is wrong with Buddhism? Like, I don't, I don't do that. I don't have a need to do that because there's, there isn't a gap there in my life. Yet there are people from other worldviews that do exactly that and write papers and books about it to explain why it can't be possible that there's a happiness in Christianity. It's a really, honestly, I think that's confounding in the intellectual world, why it only goes one direction. So they too then are under the sun in this sense. So life is cyclical. There's a time for everything. Yet there's these people that seem to just be happy. 
God requires an account of it, is the last part of that verse. Life is then seasonal in nature, and yet there's a judgment that's coming as we go through those seasons. We have this lifespan that we live, that the whole thing will be judged in total. God requires an account. If God has made something that's eternal, and he's put us into that, then how we react to it is essentially the account of our life. Right? And so he doesn't go too deep into this right now, because I think he's still under the sun. But he does just acknowledge that there's people that should that are evidence of fearing God that has some benefit. Except for evil, this is a problem. Why don't these people see evil? Right? So you've heard this too, right? How can a good and holy God have all this evil on the planet? And that's spoken as almost like an argument against Christianity or Judaism or a belief in Yahweh. Right? You've heard this? Right? That's the, that's the proposition they're laying out. Well, how can a good and holy God have a world where there's so much evil? Verse 16, Solomon goes there. It's like he's going back and forth with these worldviews. Verse 16, Moreover, I saw under the sun, in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. And in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. So back to the world, okay, true, there's this honesty about what's going on here, but Solomon has no interest in an experiment that sets up a strongman argument. He takes on the most challenging arguments that he can. It's reasonable to treat everyone like a singer, a sinner and that we assume the worst of them, but that would be evil. The worldly truth is that sometimes there is wickedness on the earth and sometimes wickedness does win. And this is an ungodly win, but we can't also deny then that there aren't righteousness people. Even godly people sin and do wrong. Wicked people sin and godly people sin. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there, and in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. There's good people that do iniquity. There's evil people that are in the place of judgment, and they don't seem to be getting judged. How can a good, beautiful, eternal God still allow an evil, ugly, and crude events and crude people to exist on the planet? So an idea like karma in the Hindu religion, it just doesn't work here, right? Everyone has fallen. And there's an, how does this, how does evil ever get punished? It just, like, there's this cyclical life system. Like, how does that work? Because how do you judge an entire lifespan that has both good and evil in it and then make a karmic, like, who makes the karma decision? And how is that just? It's a great question. It's also a limited question. It assumes that God does things in our time, not in his time. It's a very us-centric question. But he'll return to this in chapter 4, so I will too. Verse 17. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. I said in my heart, he's again thinking with human reasoning here, and he's sticking to this worldview. If there's a time for everything, then there's also a time for judgment, that the judgment is going to come. So perhaps that's outside of our mortal lives. Perhaps it's not in our existence that we're judged at some other time. But we trust that in God there might be a logical conclusion, but under the sun there really isn't one. Deuteronomy 32, 34. Is it not laid up in store with me, sealed among my treasures? Vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things to come have hastened upon them. For the Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants. Romans 5, 6, in case you're just thinking that's Old Testament. For when, there, when we were without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For the scarcely for a religious man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Like that seems to resolve it, but Solomon doesn't have that answer quite yet. There are some things that God is not revealing yet, but there is a time for vengeance and a time for salvation if we want to add to his poem. There's a time for these things. Verse 18, I said in my heart concerning the condition of the sons of men, God tests them that they may see that they themselves are like animals. For what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them as one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals for all his vanity. Right? So this is the whole PETA animal rights movement coming on. For all go to one place, all are from the dust, all return to the dust. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men, which goes upward, and the spirit of the animal, which goes down to the earth? How do we know that we're different than animals? 
I've used animal references a lot because of these verses. Solomon's asking that same question. Why we have a dog that's part of our Bible study for this very reason. Right, Timber? Yes, he's, he's right on track. Think about this. Under the, under the sun, there's this logical flow of the fatalist that is that essentially we're all just like animals going through this planet and spinning around on this earth. We all die. There's nothing left. You know, each of these verses kind of gets into that. And there's some truth here. We really don't have anything under, on animals under the sun. Like, we're not more important than a mosquito, are we? Or how do we even begin to make that claim? And we slap mosquitoes all the time. A time to kill is when a mosquito's biting you, right? But we kill things, yet who are we to have the right to kill mosquitoes? Maybe there's some larger being that has the right to slap us into a pulp when it feels like it. Like, who's to say? If we're all beasts and we think like beasts, I mean, if you think like a beast, you become a beast. And we have monsters walking around on the planet, evil people. So we justify these actions. This is a strong cousin to an evolutionary worldview. If it's all accidental and none of it matters, then why should I ever be moral? I'm not better than a beast. Maybe I should just be one and take that on. And that's a horrifying thought. Something in us is like, whoa, that's a really evil thought. Why? Why is that so evil? If there's no God, there's no accountability, no judgment, we all die and become dust anyways, why not become the most powerful beast I know? And this is Nietzsche's will to power. It's the, the ubermensch, the superman, the person that says, I'm just going to be the biggest thing I can in my world and take as much enjoyment out of it as possible. Try taking food away from a dog and see if they stay nice wagging their tail. Right? It's a very different reaction. So outside of any eternal, under the sun, if we don't think of anything in the heavens or eternally, we're, we have nothing more important in us than a gnat, right? Or an elephant, if you want a big animal, you know, you think highly of yourself, but we're not that much more important. If you see a little, this, uh, they, we all come from the same place, we all go to the same place. I think Solomon's trying to drive into our heart, why would we, it's vain for us to think we're more important than animals. So if you get a litter of puppies, they play with each other sometimes, but they will also starve the runt by stealing its food. So that little litter of cute, fluffy puppies, they do horrible things to each other. Really bad things. And I've met men and women that think only of themselves. I think you have too. They can be really vicious human beings because the only thing that matters is their own life. They become jealous. They become cruel. They can envy. They can exhibit these things that are horrid. And people often point to animals, and I've seen this research where they'll say, well, look at these orangutans. They exhibit fear, jealousy. They have power dynamics in their communities and cultures. The Bible never denies that. Animals and beasts do all sorts of things that look mildly human under the sun. And left without God in our life, who's to think we're not like that? Lord of the Flies, I think, makes this point excellently. Left to our own devices without law and order and any sort of moral code outside of ourselves, Humans get nasty really quick. And this gets proven throughout history. So there's this idea that we're as good as beasts. If we're all dust, why not elevate ourselves however we can? Sad. This is a terrifying thought. So who knows? Verse 21. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men, which goes upward, but the spirit of the animal, which goes downward? Who knows that? Who knows that for certain? Are you sure your spirit is upward or somehow more noble than an animal? For instance, on planet Earth, Again, Douglas Adams, I was in a mood. Man had always assumed that he was more intelligent than dolphins because he'd achieved so much. The wheel, New York, wars, and so on. Whilst all the dolphins had ever done was muck about in the water having a good time. But conversely, the dolphins had always believed they were far more intelligent than man for precisely the same reasons. So this idea of us thinking we're better than dolphins, that's a preposterous idea if you take God out of the equation. We're not. Dolphins are simply better creatures than we are. They're nicer, to be honest. Douglas Adams was not a believer. Verse 22, So I per perceive that nothing is better than that man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage. Who can bring him to see what will happen after him? You know what? All you got is rejoice in you. It's all about you. You're the most important thing. It's all you have. I don't know if I need, even need to expand that. It's such a prevalent worldview in our culture right now. Just celebrate you, man. Look deep down in your heart, and you're going to find the super you that you are always looking for. 
you know, and, and this is where I mock Disney's princess narratives and whatever. If you just look deep in yourself, there's a princess waiting to come out. You just need to feed the princess. There's also a wolf there, but they forget to talk about that, right? So just entertain yourself, rejoice in your own works. Don't worry about life after death. This is kind of an oblivion point of view expressed in a much longer kind of way. You're like the Pink Panther singing, didn't, 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 didn't. Okay. Solomon's not quite sure at this point in the book. It seems like the book has led him to a dead end, doesn't it? How do we know what happens after death? We can't. Under the sun, there's nothing. It's a dead end. So then he returns to the idea of evil. And, it, and, it, and in verse 22, he doesn't settle that idea. He's got to pick these ideas back up and go. So what's coming up next for us? The answer that I think Christ actually shows us the answer to these things. So I don't want to leave us at the end of chapter 3 kind of still despondent in these things, right? John 14, let your heart not be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me, Jesus. And in my Father's house there are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you, and if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going and how we can know the way. Who's man to understand the difference between beasts? And, like, we have no idea. How do we know that? This is a great question from Thomas. He probably studied Ecclesiastes. How do we know that? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm showing you the way. So I love that. I love that Thomas is the doubter and the cynic in the group. I love that the book of Ecclesiastes gets voiced right through Thomas's mouth. How do we know that, Jesus? And he's like, I am. That's the answer to it. God loves it. He records it. He embraces Thomas. He's not excluded from the, the Gospels. His account is in there because God wants us to think through it and to think through it carefully. So Thomas isn't a failed disciple. Remember, he's a successful disciple. Being a doubter and a cynic is not a stumbling block to active faith. It's actually the thing that gets some people there. They have to wrestle through the depression the fatalism, the hedonism. They have to go through those paths because they can't just be the simple believer. What a blessing Solomon acknowledges, but most people can't do that. They can't live a life that they know is a lie, right? So everybody doubts. Everybody has those moments. Some people deaden that and they move on with life and some people embrace it and go to despair and despondency and some people work through it and the way through it is Jesus Christ. He is the answer. This is why... I love Ecclesiastes. God doesn't have a problem with people wrestling with things. It is okay to wrestle, and it gives permission to do it. So Jesus picks a specific time in history, and he drops in and gives the answer to these questions. Um, and he's been spending about 2,000 years building a new apartment for us. Like, that's what he's, that's the answer. There is something beyond life, and that is God's preparing a place for us. That's what comes after. Jesus brings us to a place where he is, John 6, verse 40, and this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up in the last day. John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Wait, did Jesus just compare us to beasts? Yeah, but beasts that follow a shepherd. Maybe we are like beasts in a way, and that that's our place. And I give them eternal life that they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Even Solomon under the sun admitted, if there is a God, that God is eternal. You can't add to what he's done, and you can't take away from what he's done. And Jesus says the same thing. He is eternal. You can't add to it, and you can't take away. Not one of them will be taken from my hand. That's assurance of salvation. What can we know about this life after death? The answer to Solomon's question is life without God is empty. You can have lots of knowledge, drugs, alcohol, sex, adventures, business, fatalism, awesome escape rooms, but they don't bring life, so we don't worship those things. Matthew 7, verse 24, Therefore, whoever hears these things of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on a rock. Solomon's explaining all the bad places to build your house. Jesus explains the one good place. Man, it's just like hearing, like to me, it's like I have to just like work my way back out of Ecclesiastes and remember some of these things because Ecclesiastes can be a pretty dark hole. 
with God, we're part of the plan. God does all things. He's eternal, complete, and secure. That's our foundation. God is, God will do everything in his time, in his due time. We can't rush it and we can't slow it down. There's a context to what we do in life. And God reveals a larger plan or meaning that we can be part of. There is a framework to life. There is a foundation, a context, and a framework. The three things that Solomon just completely deconstructed. And God says, no, they're actually, those things are real. You just have to find him and do that. So Ecclesiastes 3, there's a time for everything. There's also a time to find Jesus. And that's essentially the, the outcome of this. And I hope that little New Testament reminders of the answers to these questions. But I like that Solomon asked the questions. And it's okay for us to struggle with those a little bit. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for Ecclesiastes. Thank you for chapter 3. Thank you that it's okay to doubt and it's okay to struggle. Thank you, Lord, that you don't run from the idea uh, that there's a question of evil. Uh, thank you, Lord, that you also don't run from the idea that some believers do it in utter simplicity and they are simple, joyful believers and that that's actually a gift from God and it's precious. And the reason you've put those people among us is to remind us that there is joy. There is a way to happiness and life that we can find. Uh, Lord, help us to find it, to not be too lost in ourselves, um, but to be lost in you and to find ourselves as having meaning through your plan. And Lord, we love you and we just can't wait to see what comes next in Ecclesiastes as we look at money and wealth and all sorts of things. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.